4: Thank you.
3: Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, a show to help you feel a little less weird about money one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco de Leon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Sarah Diener. As someone that's always struggled with a scarcity mindset, it's interesting to watch myself create abundance in one area of my life, for example, my finances, only to turn around and create scarcity in other areas of my life, for example, my time. It begs the question, what role have I played that allows me to remain in situations that I don't want to be in? That's a hard question to confront. I'm not asking it as a way to gloss over systemic issues or the reality that things outside of our control impact our lives. I ask it because the folks I've met that have found a way to live an abundant life, whatever that definition means to them, have not just asked the question, but they're able to answer it. Sarah Godestiner is one of those people. She is ruthlessly dedicated to understanding her true nature, taking action in the face of fear, and doing the hard work of transformation. From years of under-earning to being in the top 8% of women-owned businesses. In my conversation with Sarah, we explore how life can be frustratingly paradoxical, how less can be more, and what we can do to cultivate abundance in our lives. Please enjoy my conversation with Sarah. I'm so thrilled and I'm so excited that you're taking time out of your day to chat with me. I have so many questions for you, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: I am so happy to be here. I can't
3: wait to get into all things. I have been so thrilled and excited watching you from afar, watching you grow your business. And you've recently told me that your business over the last 18 months has earned you over a million dollars, which puts you in the top 8% of women-owned businesses in the U.S., which is a little nuts that I was hoping that more women were earning more, frankly. But I know the great majority of your career, you were a chronic under-earner. And so I would love for you to just walk me through this journey from chronic under-earning to being in the top 8% of women-owned businesses in the U.S.
5: Yeah. Wow. So I started working when I was about 13 for extra money. I was like a nanny and babysitter. And then for much of my life, I was a waitress. So from about 15 to about 25, I was a waitress at a couple of fancy places, but mostly places that you may have heard of, such as the illustrious TGI Fridays and other Greasy Spoon Diners. So I always had this relationship with money. Maybe it was because of my upbringing and class. Maybe it was because of not growing up with peers that had different ideas. I think our construct of money is so influenced by epigenetics and history and ancestry and what is around us and what is not around us and the subtle cues and the not so subtle cues around money and our gender and our race and our class and our ability. And I have ADHD. And I also think, oddly, being really bad at math was sort of like a money deterrent. I can basically count and (laughs) add and subtract. But like, that's it. You know, I, I basically stopped taking math because I was failing out of it. So I think there's like all of these different things. And I kind of felt I think I had a subconscious script kind of running that I wasn't allowed to make money. And then that was also solidified. By when I would get better job opportunities, I would often find out that the man at the job doing something very similar to me, like at a corporation or a company and so forth, was making anywhere from like $10,000 to $30,000 more than, you know, they would casually sort of say what they were starting at. And I just remember feeling really discouraged. And I think a lot of the scripts I had was, you know, you have to overwork when I like do my own money work, like I teach classes on it and things like that, one of it, one of them that still to this day will, is like, (laughs) hello darkness, my old friend, is like, we can never, uh, you'll never get ahead. Or like, there we go again. Like if there's like an unexpected bill, like it was very common in my household for us to like be treading water and then that unexpected car breaking down or like a big bill, electrical bill, the refrain was, you know, like, Oh, like, we just got to be okay. And so I think I subconsciously, there was stuff around worth, I think a lot. I think I was also, I'm highly sensitive and was super and uh, am still incredibly introverted. So I think like the whole American culture of going for what you want and like having people look at you and like the extroverted nation, like bootstraps was, is just so naturally foreign. To me, I don't like competing. I think games, I think like sports are stupid because I I don't understand why we want to compete. Like, I don't, I'm like a yoga, like solo running kind of gal. Like, I'm not, I just, none of the culture around work and money and like all of that just vibed with me. So now I'm getting long. So I'll just fast forward. So I really, because I couldn't find a job that, and I'm, and I, Feel as though this is a common refrain from solopreneurs or entrepreneurs. I moved to LA really quickly. I was, I quit a job working at Nike as their global running graphic designer. It was a really great job, wonderful job. It was the best job I ever had. I left because of my intuition telling me that I needed to move to LA, which was which is kind of funny, but here we are. And I, I was like, oh, it'll be no problem for me to get a job. You know, like everyone has heard of Nike and I didn't know anyone in L.A. And for me and my partner, L.A. did not roll out the red carpet and it, we were catering and, you know, and I just was like, OK, I need to figure something out and make a living. And slowly over time, I started graphic designing, uh, freelancing. Then I started, I'm also a psychic medium, so I started seeing clients and teaching classes on mysticism and the occult and archetypes. And that was in around 2011 or 2012, this well before the explosion of everything, you know, so I think just me doing it for so long and word of mouth, then I started teaching more classes and creating products and writing books. And so our business is a mix now of classes and products. So we have all kinds of products you can buy. And then we also have classes you can buy either live courses with me on everything from money to boundaries to archetypes and living in kind of your purpose and living a more spiritual life. And then we also have um, books you can buy and journals and workbooks and candles and perfumes and all kinds of lifestyle goods for those who are wanting to live a more intentional life. So that's kind of That's the very, very, very too long story about how I got here.
3: Your studio is very impressive. The fact that you're able to crank out so many products that seem like such a good fit for your audience is really impressive. I know that it's definitely not easy to create physical things and put them out into the world, and especially at the pace that you're making things. What did you do though? How much of y- your ability to change, rewrite scripts, step into your worthiness? How much of it was like a result of rote action, right? You started the company, you put stuff out there, you consistently put stuff out there. And how much of the change was things that we don't see, right? The internal work, connecting with your spirituality, going to therapy. Can you give us a breakdown?
5: It was probably. You know, I think whenever you're changing something, you want to change it from the inside out because if you don't transform from the inside out, you'll have a midlife crisis. If you don't transform from the the inside out, the external, I mean, we see, hello, it's like America. Like we see the, the dopamine hits, the constant striving, the more, 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 it becomes never enough. And so cultivating that enoughness, cultivating that contentment, cultivating an abundance mentality and getting really clear on what your gifts are, what your true nature is, what you want to be exploring, and how that all aligns with Who you are, your preferences, your habits, what you want to do in the world, how you find meaning, your energy levels. Are you chronically ill? I'm chronically ill. Like all like what do you want to spend the most time doing? All of these things create this sort of pie chart of what you're doing. But I will say I'll I'll tell a really brief story about action. A lot of the times we view the world through potentiality or through our Pain points. A lot of the time, for example, you'll you'll hear like someone say like, "Oh well, I can fix him," or you know, we'll we'll be seeing things through our rose rose colored glasses. And I certainly did that for many 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 years, right? Until I started living with the ethos of if nothing changes, then what? If nothing changes, then what will you do? If this person never changes their behavior. Are you still going to stay with them? If this job never changes, are you okay staying there? How? What? For how long? And so on and so forth. And it's, I'm a spiritual person, but it's a reality. We have to see things through the lens of reality. So I was adjuncting. One of my dreams was to become a professor, a tenured professor. That was like one of my biggest dreams that I spent much money and much time cultivating And I was in L.A. working at three colleges, one of the privileged ones, because even working, even teaching at a fancy college is some kind of privilege. But I was making maybe 30 grand, if that. I was working, you know, four days a week, didn't barely have any time, was barely breaking even, had to freelance, had to cater, had to do all of these things outside of it. And I just was like, you know what? I'm not going to become a tenured, because I was applying for all these tenured track jobs. I would get an interview, blah blah blah, right? And then I just thought, I, it, this isn't going to happen. This isn't changing. It's been years. And the other thing that started happening, and maybe I'm telling on myself a little bit here, for a really long time, I was the friend who would do all the work for free. I'd design your business cards, I'd design your gay night flyer, I'd design your resume, I like I would do. All of this free work because service is one of the ways that I feel spiritually aligned, right?
3: I feel you And that.
5: <laughs> then I looked up. Yeah, I looked up and I was like, wait a minute. All this is getting me is more free labor. Free All the free work I was doing for these people weren't them saying, hey, I've got this friend. He wants to hire you. Hey, like none of it. And what I'll say to designers and creatives is we do have to create work for our portfolio. And one way to do that is free work. I'm not saying like don't work for free or don't enhance your skills. But if you're spending so much time doing that and it's time you could, I mean, I would make more money catering for $13 an hour than you know, finessing over some digital flyer for a friend's gay night. So and and no tea, no shade, no pink lemonade, right? But I just think I had to get really honest about what behaviors I was doing and then change those and then work with my nervous system to habituate that to the new normal boundaries. Like I've worked with clients around money stuff for quite a while. One of my clients, for example, she realized every time she sent an invoice, her nervous system freaked out. And so because of that, she wouldn't send invoices because she would get anxiety. And we had to do a lot of work with her nervous system. We had to do a lot of Subconscious work. We had to do a lot of work around receiving and, you know, all of that stuff in order for her to just like hit send on an email. And this is really real. I'm not saying this to belittle her. I'm saying like there are all these little things that we don't think about that are running the show with our relationship with work and worth and money and our body is letting us know. Our subconscious is letting us know. If we look around at our life, our life can sometimes be a printout of everything we're doing incredible and everything we're doing that maybe is due for a change. I'm not talking about systemic oppression, obviously, but just the things we have control over and the things we do habitually often stem from some kind of pattern, our nervous systems, our somatics our psychology and i know you know all about that paco
3: yeah it's been wild to get a finance degree and a minor in in economics and feel like like my ego walks around like me smart haha you know and then look at my bank account for many years and and wonder like why am i under earning this is insane that i'm you know i'm at these places where they're managing a billion dollars and they're not paying me enough and I am too scared to vocalize that I need more that I need help that I'm riding my bike 15 miles to work because I can't afford gas and why can't I just talk to my boss about it and you know you're you're really hitting the nail on the head when you're talking about there's a countless invisible ways that our past from our own you know, individual experience to things that we're, we've internalized or have happened generationally, you know, ahead of us that impact all of these little things, you know, who picks up the bill and who feels uncomfortable picking up the bill and who doesn't even want to talk about picking up the bill. It's, um, you know, I feel like the more that I know about money, the more I realize there's so much I don't know or there's so many different tentacles from all these different areas of life that impact it. One of the things that's been like such a theme in my life recently that I've been observing with a lot of people around me is total lack of boundaries. And I feel like in your 20s, you can get by with total lack of boundaries. It's like, whatever, we're all in our 20s and we're shitting on each other, frankly, and treating each other poorly and learning how to be adult human beings. But I noticed that there's like a limit, right, to to the boundaries. It's like I feel like as soon as you're in your 30s or mid-30s, approaching 40s, you start to see really, what lack of boundaries looks like. And so I would love if you could kind of tell me your take on that or talk to me about times that you've seen clients have poor boundaries and how that's impacted their financial lives. Oh, yes. Well,
5: even just not being able to send an invoice, you know, or waiting a month or two or something like that. I think it also... I think looking at, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but just also for fe- people, who are l- people who are listening, who want to have some tools to be able to self-reflect and make appropriate changes, we, our boundaries often have to do with our attachment styles and also what our nervous system tends to do most often. So there's the four Fs, right? There's fight, flight, fawn, freeze, Some people call them other names. Of course, I'm no psychology expert, but I have had to do a lot of research and a lot of practice on the nervous system. So for example, if you tend to go into fawn, which is, you know, people pleasing, placating, um, letting other people's desires or wants run the show, so to speak, or let other people speak up, then with money... You might just let your partner or your boss, you might not sit down with your boss to say, hey, it's been seven years. I haven't gotten a raise. We need to talk. You might read that as conflict, right? So any kind of tension to that phone response can be read as conflict, can be read as loss because we're so adorable humans who just want belonging connection to be loved to be accepted and we will do it's kind of a remarkable that we will do anything to get love not money like money is a symbol right but money can be a symbol of love so another example that just comes to mind is if you're a freezer any hand I'm raising my hand I'm I'm a freezer I mean I'm all of them I can be all of them we can be all, we're all we all contain multitudes but I'm a freezer And so that would be, that would come up in a lot of avoidance. You just, at my worst, when my mental health is low, when she's not, you know, hydrated, when she's looking at the world for too long and getting existential, I will ignore my bills. They'll pile up, you know, especially with my ADHD. I won't make a budget. I won't future cast. I will just shut down right? I will just shut down to try to conserve energy because it feels too overwhelming. Actually, one thing I want to say to be so vulnerable and transparent is one thing I've been coming up against with money that I didn't realize happened, but I know you know, Paco, because you're an expert. So my partner and I, neither one of us came from money. And now for the first time in our lives, we have extra money. Not a lot, like not like down payment on a house money, but like, We're like, well, what could we do money? You know, like, oh, we could maybe go on a nice vacation or we could, I don't know what, do a renovation or something like that. We don't really know what to do. We don't really know how to hold it. Do we feel irresponsible? We're both finding ourselves go back to our baseline of like having some credit card debt. There's literally no reason why. But because we're sort of uneasy, Right. Because we've spent so decades of our life basically not quite having enough, being used to paying a credit card bill, being used to not making bigger adult decisions around money. And that I was shocked at because I was like, wait, hold on. I did so much work around worth and being able to like be okay with big numbers in my bank account, big for me, not big for like, you know, demons who will not be named who are like, Controlling the stock market, but pick for me, you know? Uh, but I'm like, oh, right. Like there's always these other thresholds where our nervous system is going to read it as freaky deaky and is gonna wanna revert to the baseline. And we have to be so kind. For me, I kind of I've like let it slide. I'm like, you know what? You just need to like be a little messy for a while. Like you, you're not quite ready, you know. And now I am again, you know, like I'm like, okay, we need to like figure this out. And that's what we're actually doing together this spring. And I'm doing and blah, blah, blah. But I, it's this, it's this like garden that has to keep being tended to. And to go back to money and boundaries, I teach this concept called intrinsic boundaries, which really are boundaries from the inside out. They're not about, keeping things out, they're about bringing more of yourself in and it and we take into account our desires, our needs and our values. And so when I work with money that way personally, I realize I feel ashamed not because I'm spending money on frivolous things. I feel ashamed because I'm not spending the bulk of my money consciously and W- doing things that I value, right? So, like, instead of doing something I value, which is an experience or something that brings me intimacy with someone, I might just like blow it on a pair of shoes and that doesn't do anything for me. So, when we're thinking about our boundaries and how we want to operate with ourselves, boundaries can help us locate our values, our needs, our desires, and our true nature and operate with money accordingly. You know, this is also how we can rewrite scripts that have been given to us. We can now consciously think about, okay, well, how do I want to spend my money? What makes me feel good? And also for me with someone who has ADHD, boundaries are really great with money where I am a container brain. So if I have my bank account for taxes, my bank account for fun, my bank account for bills, like I literally dude, I literally have like eight bank accounts because I have ADHD and I just like put them in like my savings and da, da, da. That's easier for me to budget than look at like a Google spreadsheet. Because again, like I said, I get really overwhelmed when I like see numbers and I'm having to add them up and the tables and like, like that, those silly little like things you have to put in the cells. What are they? Equations? I don't even know. Right. So I, you have to also figure out a money system that works for you. Some of my clients, I actually had this ex girlfriend she'd be like I need you to hold my money she'd be like so every paycheck she'd give me like $200 and then in 6 months i'd be like hey look you have a savings now you have a fuck you fund so you have to make it work for you and not feel ashamed there was no shame there she realized she needed to give it to someone. And maybe you're like, you know what? That feels really good. What if I give the, this to my boyfriend or, you know, whatever? Or what if I put it in a safe or what? However it makes sense for you, you want to work with, not against your true nature, but boundaries and money. I mean, is that going to be your next book, Paco? <laughs> Because that book needs to be written, don't you think?
3: Yeah, that is a good point. I'm afraid of climbing and losing myself in a manuscript uh, at the moment, but uh, I appreciate that idea. <laughs> Speaking of boundaries.
5: Love it. Love to see a good boundary. <laughs>
6: LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone, The studios didn't really control the theaters, the theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar.
2: It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson.
6: In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
4: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple
7: Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Alex, I noticed you've been mindful of your finances lately. Have you considered opening a high-yield money market savings account with an online bank? They're offering much better interest rates these days. A high-yield what?
3: Wait, online
7: banks? Say more, dude. A high-yield money market savings account is a type of savings account that usually offers higher interest rates than traditional ones. Since interest rates have gone up, that means some online banks are paying much more to keep your money in their savings accounts. I just looked, and some are as high as 4% compared to less than 1% at bigger banks. Oh, that's a significant difference.
3: Wait, but how does it work? And is it safe?
7: It's simple. You deposit your money into the account and it earns interest over time. Most of these accounts are FDIC insured up to $250,000. So your money is protected.
3: Oh, that sounds great. Uh, But are there any fees or restrictions with online banks? Some banks
7: may have fees or require a minimum balance. But many online banks offer competitive rates with little to no fees. Just be sure to shop around and find the best option for you.
3: Thanks, Sam. I'll definitely look into opening a high-yield money market savings account with an online bank. Now I know.
7: And knowing is half the battle.
3: Weird Weird Finance.
0: Weird Finance. Weird Finance. Weird Finance.
3: Okay, when you were talking about, you know, all of the layers that you have when you, you, you know, you heal something within yourself and and you notice progress and then you go down this slippery slope. I mean, I am feeling that way right now. Recently I've been shocked at the amount of fluctuation and like pendulum swinging I've had with my emotions when it comes to like profound, like true in my body gratitude for like, Just the littlest things in life like the the wind on my skin and a beautiful cloud and you know trees in the distance swaying like I feel almost this is slightly embarrassing compelled to tears that's how connected I sometimes feel with you know the universe and then I have moments where it's a violent pendulum swing and I am feeling so desperate I feel like I've been working so hard And externally, there's all these things that show my quote unquote success, my book, this podcast, people are calling and it's still I still feel like I I think what it what it feels like to me is some level of impatience or like, shouldn't I be further along? And to make this about me, Sarah, frankly, uh, do you ever feel that way? And like, what do you think like the root cause of this violent pendulum swing is?
5: Yeah. I mean, welcome to being a human, right? So I'll just tell a very brief story just to kick it off and then I'll share some thoughts and then you can share some thoughts. I literally was just telling a friend last weekend after having a... I'm sober, but um, I had like, I guess you could say like an emotional hangover or like an emotional purging, I guess you could say. I said to my friend, you know, I underwent, maybe it was like seven years ago or so, I underwent a pretty severe spiritual enlightenment phase. And when I was in it, it was like just as you described. It was like when you're in the montage of the beginning of a movie and someone's like twirling around the street and they're like tipping their hat at you know they're like hey Jed and like but it was like to everything. It was like someone who would cut me off in traffic, I'd be like, "Oh god, bless them." Like, you know, it's just I was I I was just in a good place. And I thought I was just telling my friend this. I thought I was at the top of a mountain and I wasn't going to be able to, I I was not going to leave the mountain and everything was going to be beautiful and nothing was ever going to hurt again. And then fast forward to like seven years later, also just in my own life, seven is a cycle for me. I realized I was actually an inchworm that had made it one little inchworm, like beep, you know on a leaf that they couldn't even see the end to you know like i was like oh how silly i was right and i think that there's this annoying thing about being a human being where the more secure and the more we heal in some areas that safety or that good vibes as you were saying or the the pendulum towards gratitude and bliss and feeling accomplished and feeling content and you know just feeling really heart centered and open is be, be creates a safe space for some of our inner child stuff for some of our woundings to make its way out and what i do is i mean this is shame is a hell of a drug right and so one of the only ways we can dissolve it is through compassion and curiosity and Being what we need ourselves to be or being what we needed, you know, when we didn't get the things that we so craved. Um, So it's this process, I think, that it's like these layers. There's also this idea spiritually of the healing spiral, which is that we go around and around and around again on themes. All of us have, you know, maybe five to 10 core themes. Some of them are the same. Some of them are different. And we go around almost like when you rewatch a movie, right? Like it's like, say you watch one of a movie from five years ago and you're like, I never realized this part of the movie. Or you, you see it so differently because you've changed. Your perspective has changed. You know, you're going through different things. You can appreciate it more or you don't appreciate it more. And that's the hi- the healing spiral. We'll, we'll go around and we'll, it's almost like get. then we get off at the train and we're on the station. We're like, fuck, they let me off at the like shame station. You're like, can I please get on the train? And then they're like, no, the universe is like, nope, got to stay here. Got to like hang out here for a while because we want to make repair at the root or we want to make progress or we want to go down a little deeper or we want to go a little bit higher. And then finally something happens. We release, we have and understanding we forgive ourselves, we forgive others, we change our behavior, right? Remember, we're going back to what we talked about, what you asked me in the beginning, it's like 50% internal, 50% external percentages may change per person, per train station, stop off at the healing spiral, right? Sometimes we just have to make changes and like do the thing. And sometimes we have to just sit with ourselves for longer. But anyway, and then we get back on the train and we're like cruising around for a while looking out the window and then it's time to stop another train and sometimes we get off and we're like oh my god this is the bliss train this is the like i'm gonna have a baby train or like i'm gonna like find out my family of origin or i'm gonna be able to gift my abuela a, a trip to mexico like train and you're like this is so healing and i feel like i'm in a disney movie all the new ones that they're making about intergenerational trauma and then we enjoy that and then we get on the train again. And that's the healing spiral. So I think I love that you're you are bringing this up and that we have a chance to talk about this because it's just so normal. Like it's such a normal human. Anyone who is alive and self-aware is is in this. It it, it doesn't end. You know, I think it's just part of being a human
3: being living in the world. Snap, snap. What do you think? Yeah. I forgot about the spiral. I have a friend at the <laughs> one of my new gym gym friends is a somatic therapist and she has brought up the spiral of healing a couple of times and I guess the train that I'm on is like I'm not ready to absorb that but now that it's being presented to me a third time I'm like, ah oh, yes. I am caught up in this spiral and I'm just glad that, you know, I have somebody like you that I can just ask these very personal questions about in public. Um, to help me feel like, okay, you know, I am doing the work and things can be great. And sometimes things can feel amazing. And sometimes things feel shitty. And that's, you know, like you said, it's part of the human experience. It's part of the path. And, you know, I got to just try to enjoy the ride, frankly.
5: 100%. I also think I am enjoying this expanded conversation in society that I've been seeing since 2020 is when I've been noticing it, which is having very notable people, people at the top of their industry, like world-class athletes or actors being very transparent about mental health challenges as a result of, you know, getting to this mountain or the summit and that the way that we run society is very cruel and frankly doesn't work for anyone, not even the people who quote unquote have made it. You know, I think that the more we can have open conversations about this, where, yes, we're, I mean, I'll just speak for myself, like on paper, I look okay. There, yeah, there are definitely times where I feel like I'm at a rock bottom or I feel a lot of shame or things come up, because it can be both and. And I think that the problem we get sold from current society is that when you get this, and because your podcast is called Weird Finance, when our finances look great, then we should feel great. And I always say to my students and to anyone who's listening, when you see these these men who make so much money a lot of them just, like, don't seem very happy. Like, do our politicians seem super stoked? Are they, like, greeting the trees and saying hello and grateful? Like, are they, like, saying a little prayer of gratitude before they, like, put on their tie? Maybe some of them are. You know, I I don't want to make generalizations, of course, but I'm like, the politicians who are hunting trans children do not seem like they're happy. A contented, loving, secure person would not inflict hatred and harm on another person. And so power, which money is often a part of, right, which is what people often connote with uh, the symbology of money, the power that people are after only makes them more and more hungry and more and more insecure because it doesn't give them actual purpose. It doesn't give them actual intimacy. It doesn't allow them to express their their true nature. And it doesn't often come with also a spiritual connection of some of some kind. So I really hope you know I don't think it will happen in our lifetimes but I think the more conversations we can have about the codedness of money and the frailty in a good way like the vulnerability of humanity the better.
3: Right now, I'm looking up this quote as you're talking because it reminds me of this quote about Have you heard about it? It's like wealth and fame are like salt water. The more you have, the thirstier you get, something like that. Yeah. And yeah, that, that just made me the way that you were talking about. Yeah. I feel like I'm on the precipice of falling for it. And that's really hard for Always. me. Always. <laughs> it's really hard for me to admit. I'm hot th- saying it out loud and thinking about it. Always. Like,
5: uh, like we're, uh, we're taught there's, but there's no end to it. Right. Like, and often in our society, what we have to do to keep it up is we have to work harder and harder. Not always. Right. Like I'm, that's what I'm currently obsessed with. I'm like, okay, well, how can I actually work less and make the same or even a little bit more, you know, but we're taught to want these things because we're taught that they solve a problem. And in America, they do solve a problem. In America, money does solve the problem that we all face, which is about survival and about security, right? And it shouldn't have to be that. We should all, I'm a proponent of universal basic income and raising the minimum wage and free healthcare and all of the wonderful things that I think we need as a humane Society, because, as you've said, Paco, money is a delusion, like this is all fake we've all we've all just created this thing, so I think it's super normal, and I think like admitting things like that too is like, yeah, for me, it's the same, not I mean, I'm more ambivalent around certain things, I think, but we want relief, you know, we want relief, we want certain problems to be solved, and it's not that they don't solve those problems. It's just that they're a piece of the pie chart of being a fulfilled, actualized, connected
3: human being. Thank you, Sarah. I will say that I have recently taken some action in my personal life to create more space for just having a more playful relationship with creativity because, you know, doing a podcast every week and publishing a weekly email newsletter and caring about social media, which is heinous, but you have to in this world, that's a lot of creativity that feels like it's just, you know, kind of like a treadmill, right? It's, it's, it's purposeful, but it's not as playful as a little kid sitting down and, and making marks. So I've tried to reconnect with that person, that little kid who wants to make marks, and honor that person inside of me. And, and so in our house, I bought a little desk and I bought an old computer from a friend of mine. He was trying to sell it, and I bought it, and I set up a little you know, space to tinker with music. And I'm supposed to do it every Friday. I know we're recording this on a Friday afternoon, but I need to be a little bit more stronger with my boundaries. And I, it's ironic, and this kind of goes into the next thing I really want to ask you about, but I feel like the more space that I create for things that don't make money, for things that seem frivolous, but they really bring joy to my inner child, the more like abundance I'm going to have in my life. And this relates to, you recently put out a post on Instagram where you were talking about this idea of abundance and how sometimes having more abundance means having less or doing less. And I would love for you to talk about that idea a little bit.
5: Yeah. Like I said before, maybe it's that I don't need the shoes. Maybe I need to catch up with an old friend. Maybe I don't need to do the thing I think that will dot, dot, dot. Maybe I need to rest. And I feel like... I was just talking about this with a friend. Like everything you're bringing up is also mirroring a lot of where I'm at in my life because I'm trying to work less so that I can have half a day to just hike or journal or listen to music or just not do anything in quote productive, but just like you to do it on like a half day on a Friday. Um, a lot of the activities we, we get to do as part of our jobs. That are really enjoyable, podcasting, newsletters, marketing kinds of things, or even writing. The structure of it, especially for us creatives, can get to be a little bit jobby feeling, even if it is creative, right? We want to explore. And with that jobby feeling, there can also be a shutdown. With that job feeling, I think sometimes our adulty responsible person comes in. And so then that shuts down the inner child that's like, I just want to make a mess. I just want to cut up pieces of paper. I just want to be myself. And we need play because play, again, it's like been scientifically shown. I don't need proven. I don't need to Share this because we all know this intuition comes in and imagination comes in with play. It is play as a definition. And a lot of us don't always feel safe enough to play because a lot of us, again, I'm just raising my hand for myself, a lot of us have had to work, a lot of us have had to be productive above all else. Uh, Also, I had an astrology reading this year that like blew my mind open. You should definitely have her on uh, the show. It's uh, the People's Oracle, Dana Lynn Knuckles, I believe is her full name. And she was telling me that, well, when you play, you're really vulnerable because you have to take your hypervigilance down. And when you take that, hypervigilance down, you might be attacked or you might be abused or you might be stolen from. So like for me, I'm like a survivor. So like play can be kind of dicey, you know, it can kind of be like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. But to me, abundance, the symbol of abundance is about enoughness. It's about security When we feel like we're enough and when we feel secure, then we can take risks and we can take risks in service of our spirit, our inner child, our heart, our creativity, whatever that might be. And so play dates with ourselves, however that looks, as well as checking in with our intuition, seeing what feels good, seeing what we want to do is absolutely an abundance mentality because we see so often, as I said before, people who are very, very rich money-wise, but they're starved in other ways. And for me, I really want my life to have that balance. I don't, if there's no one to enjoy anything with, what's the point? You know, like a walk with a friend for me is absolutely more fulfilling than the shoes. I mean, ideally we live in a world where I can have both, where I can be in the new shoes with my friend, but an abundance mentality I think is about, you know, it's like, I need a can of beans. Like a can of beans will last me for, you know, a day, but I also want to like help change the world and help heal lots of people and help show people their true gifts. And, you know, I have these very, 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 like, dreamy, ambitious goals. And also I am able to be with myself and to name and locate what is enough in the material world as well. And so I think like cultivating an abundance mindset is also this really cool, fun form of play because we get to ask ourselves, well, what do I want? what do I want to do more of? What parts of me do I want to explore? What is like another thing for me with fun that I realized recently, which is like me being a weirdo. I like boxing and weightlifting and I want to get into bouldering and I like axe throwing and like these like more martial. My Mars is in my fifth house, which is like the house of creativity and Mars is often this martial planet. So like I'm like, oh, and I just realized I liked doing those things. And those things were fun for me. I was like, yeah, maybe those, maybe like boxing isn't fun for someone else, but it's fun for me. So I know I need to do it a couple times a week. So it, and that's an abundance mindset too, is like making the time to do things that you won't get better at. It's not going to like, I would never put it on social media. It's not going to like get me accolades or a medal, but it's fun and I like it. And that's more than enough
3: thank you for giving us all permission to to follow that thread to listen to that intuition and allow ourselves to become the people that we are meant to become
5: it's been such a pleasure you're amazing i'm so glad you have this podcast it was so great to get to connect with you so thank you
3: before i let you go though i want to hit you with some rapid fire questions oh are you cool with that (gasps) i'll do my best okay yeah Tell me, is there anything you've purchased that maybe to the naked eye seems frivolous, but for you, feels like money well spent? Spindrift
5: and boxing sessions. Amazing.
3: Me too, by the way. What's one piece of advice, could be financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self?
5: Start earning more money earlier.
3: Amen to that. Did you have any financial superstitions growing up?
5: I have witch superstitions. Like not, they're not like growing up, but I like, I'll give money away. I'll leave money in ATMs. I'll like round up to my magic numbers. I'll like save in like 333. That is a superstition I still do to this day. Money magic.
3: How much money are you leaving in ATMs?
5: Sometimes I'll leave like $20 for the next person. I like once a month, I also try to like pay for the person in back of me at the coffee store. I don't do it always because people can be weird, but I try.
3: I'm going to try. I'm going to leave $20 somewhere and think of you. Thank you for that. Um, Last one. Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at? I mean, it's embarrassing.
5: So I'll laugh at it. I definitely have spent too much money on coaches
3: Mm, yeah me too (laughs) yeah yeah feel that well tuition right in a lot of ways that's right Sarah I know you have a course coming out um, called embodying abundance so I want to encourage people to check that out would you like to tell them where they can follow along either in social media or sign up for your newsletter
5: yeah yeah the best place to find us is the newsletter. You can just go to moonstudio.co. That's moon-studio.co. And then you can sign up for
3: our newsletter there where you'll find out all about our offerings. Amazing. I'll make sure to link it in the show notes. And Sarah, I really cannot thank you enough for this expansive conversation that went places I could have only dreamed.
5: <laughs> it was so fun. And if y'all want more Paco, you can check them out on my podcast too. If Because it's a great conversation as well, so just wanted to plug you over there too.
3: Amazing, yes. And you write, you pull cards for me, which yes, check it out if you're curious. Oh yeah, you're
5: gonna have like off off mic. You're gonna have to like update me on that. Curious.
3: I will definitely. All right, thank you so much, Sarah. Bye.
6: Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots
3: This is Stockwatch with Paco De Leon, a former financial planner. And Amanda Holden, an ex-finance
8: bro and current investment educator.
3: Over the course of a year, we're gonna monitor the stock portfolios of three investors. There's Hank, a terrier mix that
8: oh, oh, looks honestly like a coyote, or perhaps the newest wolf of Wall Street. There's Hugo, a black and white cat living in a world full of color, but hopefully not in the red. And last, There's a human baby.
3: Each will invest in a total of $50,000 across five different stock picks, and we're going to monitor all three portfolios. In the end, there can only be one winner of StockWatch, and every six weeks
8: or so, we'll update you on the competition and teach you about investing along the way. This This is is StockWatch.
3: All right, Amanda Holden dumpster doggy. Thank you for joining us again to check out the stock watch and seeing what's going on with these portfolios. I am excited to give you an update today.
8: I can't wait to see what's been going down.
3: So in I don't know what this baby is. He's a magic baby. The next time I see him, I'm gonna pat him on the head. I'm gonna have him throw the ball down the stairs again because this baby is up by over fifteen thousand dollars in his portfolio. Remember, we started off with fifty grand. Rafa right now has $65,477.79 in his portfolio. Hugo the Cat is in second. He's down by just shy of three grand. He's got about $47,609 in his account. And old Henry, old Hank the Dog, is he's down a lot. He's got $43,425.40 in his portfolio. And as I'm looking at this big discrepancy, $43,000 versus $65,000. I can't help but wonder, and I want to ask you this, Dumpster Doggy, what's going on with these balances? Is, is this what volatility is when we're looking at Hank's portfolio being down and Rafa's being up by such a large divide?
8: Well, first, Paco, wow, this, this baby is the boss baby. <laughs> uh, Rafa has investment managers everywhere just positively sweating through their Patagonia fleece vests, <laughs> quaking in their boat shoes right now. And so let's talk a little bit about volatility, because I think it's so easy to see results like this and to assume that it is because Rafa picked good companies and because Hank the dog and Hugo the cat picked bad companies, because a stock is just that, right? A stock is a share of ownership in a company. And maybe this is the case whether or not they are good or bad may turn out to be true or not true. Paco, we we really don't know quite yet, but there is something else at play here. There are forces that cause the prices of these shares of companies, these stocks, to go up and down and up and down, especially on a day-to-day basis. And so Paco, there are really two forces that cause this wriggling around of prices in the market. Now, I know what these two forces are, and I think that you know what these two forces are, but maybe we should explore the most common answers I get when I pose this question to my students of what causes volatility. For example, I will hear students say that it's inflation, or it's interest rates, or this politician sneezed weird or mercury is in retrograde or it's the third Thursday of the month and that's my least favorite day of the month and therefore stocks are down.
3: Do you hear this as well out of the people you teach? I think that most of the folks that I talk to are at a loss. So they they're not sure. But I have heard actually, I have heard some anecdotal stuff in the industry. There's like sell in May, go away or some weird thing like that where everybody has these expectations that things are going to do poorly in the summer. And then I've heard another one about like a Santa Claus rally where people are feeling good. And so therefore, somehow that good sentiment during the holidays or the end of the year, some way, somehow magically translates to like a, the stock market doing better.
8: Right, as if there's like some fairy that comes and magically waves a wand over the stock market, or as if there's any one thing that can happen in this world that has a direct or unilateral impact on stock prices when that's not really it. Um, All of those things that I just mentioned may have some impact on our desire to own stocks and when they, when I say that there are two forces, really two primary forces that drive stock prices, those forces are supply and demand.
3: The greatest forces in the world, Amanda.
8: <laughs> yeah, for anybody that was sleeping for econ 101 because you were, you know, out doing beer bongs the night before. <laughs> well, this one's for you. This is a quick review. But you know, in particular, demand is a really compelling force in the market especially on a day-to-day basis, and maybe an easier way to think of this is buying and selling. How much do we want or do we not want to own stocks? Hmm. Because imagine a scenario where everybody is buying into one stock. That is the mechanism that drives the price higher, right? If everybody wants something, you can charge more for it. And the same is true of the reverse. If everybody is bailing out of a stock, everybody is selling because they no longer want it for whatever reason, right? The reason is almost irrelevant. It's the act of selling that is the mechanism that drops the price lower. And so, for the sake of this contest, what's important to understand is that, especially in the short term, stocks move on vibes. Mm. Which does have an official name in this business, in this business, in the investment management business. This is called sentiment. Mm. Another way in which a really smart TikToker described it is it's rich people feelings. (laughs) So, (laughs) how much people feel like owning or not owning stocks quite literally gives those stocks their value.
3: This makes me, I've always had this underlying kind of feeling that like the stock market seems like, A junior high crush or like, it's so, it's a lot more emotional, I think, than a lot of us want to admit. And I feel very validated hearing you talk about sentiment. So thank you.
8: Yeah, absolutely. And sentiment is really interesting in a lot of investment management, like when, when the professionals are designing portfolios, the primary driver they're looking at in the short term, so really anything less than a year, is sentiment, is vibes. Now, stretched over longer periods, over five years, 10 years, multiple decades, it really is going to be what we call Fundamentals that drive stock prices higher. So think of fundamentals as is this company actually a good company or not, right? Which companies are literally going to be around and profiting 10 or 20 years from now? And so, what the stock market requires is time to shake off some of this short term drama and stretch out over longer periods. What we see is that the primary engine that drives stock returns is earnings. So how much are these companies' earnings? But in the short term, it's the wild, wild west out there. A company could be doing great, but its stock could be doing poorly, which doesn't make a lot of sense unless you consider the fact that it's really these vibes. It's really how people feel about that stock and that company that is driving whether people are interacting with that stock, buying and selling that stock in the short term.
3: So let me ask you this. What should the regular, you know, normal mom and pop investor like me and you, you know, we're not professional, we're not out there trying to get you know, 11% for clients. What should we make of the vibes? Should we care? Should we not care? Should we look at it like, you know, the next season of Love is Blind and have it all as entertainment? What should we do?
8: I, I love that. <laughs> so what is often recommended is that you ignore the vibes. And understand that the vibes are either not going to tell us a whole lot right now about whether any one stock is a good or a bad investment, but it also may trick us into doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Because if you think about it, when is it a good time to buy an investment? It's actually a good time to buy an investment when the price of that investment is low. But that's when the vibes are off. And so instead of getting caught up in whatever the short-term drama of this week is, you focus on being a long-term investor and collecting as many shares as you can when the price is not good and, and the vibes are not good, but also you know, when the reverse is true as well. Just keep buying shares knowing that really owning stocks is a long-term play. The longer you hold stocks, especially broad investments in the stock market. So, for example, if you were to buy an index fund that invests in every stock in the United States, that investment actually gets less risky the longer you hold it. And the reason for that is because in the short term, anything is game, right? The market is not moving on fundamentals. The market is moving on emotion, which can be really capricious, given that the world is a really scary place and, you know, Elon Musk could tweet something and it could cause the entire stock market to crash. That type of movement on sentiment in the short term is generally pretty short lived. And the market does tend to grow beyond that, beyond these periods of drama. And so the best thing that we can often do is invest broadly Try not to pick stocks. Don't pick stocks based off of what is happening right now. And instead, think of yourself as a long-term investor in many, many companies, something that is very easily achieved by buying something like a low-cost index fund.
3: That's such great advice, Amanda. I appreciate you taking the time today to walk us through what's behind the moving prices that's impacting these portfolios. And I, uh, I'm really, I'm looking forward to seeing how this competition is going to end. Is the baby going to hold the lead? or Is the tide going to change? Only time will tell.
8: Only time will tell. So far, this competition is as wacky as the market is. So it's perfect. <laughs> Amazing. Until
3: next time, Amanda. See you, Paco. Until next time, this has been Stockwatch with Paco DeLeon and Amanda Holden. If you'd like to learn more about investing, well, you're in luck. Amanda wants to show you that investing isn't just for Wall Street bros and dusty old dudes. She has a super fun and comprehensive course that's going to leave you feeling completely confident in your ability to build wealth and navigate this overly complicated investing world with all of its terminology. Claim your financial freedom and power. Sign up for her investment education course, Invested Development, today. Head over to Amanda-Holden.com and click on course. Or you can just follow her on Instagram at dumpster.doggy, Send her a DM and she'll get you all set up. Of course, I'll also link to the course and everything else in the show notes. Until next time. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at yaggroup.com yeah Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, which is an iHeartMedia production and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yuns. Mr. Yunt produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you to Henry the dog, Hugo the cat, and Rafa the human baby for their help with this week's segment, Stockwatch, our stock competition. And a big, beautiful thank you to Amanda Holden for teaching us all about investing. To learn more from Amanda, check out her course, Invested Development. Thank you to my friends and the host of the Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast, Annie, and Samantha for lending your voices for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear sweet friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, suggestions, you want to be part of the show, or you want to ask me a question, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or you can send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. All right, that's it. We'll catch you here next week. And in the meantime, take care.